Did you have a good week? Oh, come on. You have a heart that is pumping. You're not in a hospital. I mean, and you're sitting beside some friends. Hey, I want to take a few moments before we start and see. (laughs) I'm going to hold you accountable, man. Actually, hold you accountable and also just provide opportunity for God to receive a word of praise this morning. We are in a year where we're asking God to turn us inside out and use us to impact other people's lives. And so I just wondered, maybe, if there were any God sightings that happened this week where God was able to use your life to encourage somebody else. And you just want to thank God, give a word of praise of something that God did in your life this week in encouraging someone else. Just stand up, say your name, tell us what God did. Ryan Dent, I want you to come up. Um, I'm really encouraged by our initiatives to be able to look for ways that we can impact and change other people's lives. And whether it's walking across the room or taking initiatives with opportunities. And Ryan, you have an initiative that you're doing that you're on. And I want you to share it with this body because it's going to take place right here. And you may want to be a part of it. Sure. Should I stand up here? And you can stand up here. Still there be you go. shorter. Yeah, I'm good. Um, well, I've been doing a lot of math training and whatever, I'll, hundreds of hours of math training because of the new standards, and there's not very many. I love Common Core math bumper stickers driving around Temecula. Um, so what we did was we invited um, from French Valley Elementary School. I met with the principal there and Livornia Elementary Schools to ship out um, for parents to come here. Um, and we'll do a lot of math together just to kind of break some things down a little bit. Um, it's not like a conference or a seminar where the guy stands up for two hours. We'll be setting tables up and doing math so they can connect to what their kids are doing at K-5 and how that relates to algebra and how it's going to help them later and all that kind of stuff. So um, so the idea, though, would be not just to have us here. It would be to have people who normally don't walk through those doors to come in and allow for the opportunity to kind of build bridges and things like that, just around something that everybody's struggling with or frustrated with or hates or whatever. Um, So, um, and it's what I do all the time, so it's a good opportunity to use something that God's blessed me with to help provide an opportunity for people, I guess, to walk across the room. So um, Thursday night, there'll be two two two-night sessions. Um, The first one is this Thursday in here, 5.30 to 7.30, and then a follow-up session um, that's linked to the first session the following Thursday. So um, if you have a good connection with a principal besides those two schools and you would like to um, give flyers, let me know. I can give you the flyers. Um, But it'd be good for everybody to at least pray about it, to say, hey, maybe there's somebody sitting in a living room right now who's thinking, man, I really wish I could find a church to go to or something like that or I don't know, maybe just looking for an excuse to just walk through the door um, and they've never had one. So this might be an opportunity to do that. So if everybody could just pray about that, that would be good. And um, hopefully God does his thing, I guess. Thanks, man. I mentioned that because uh, a lot of times we just don't open our eyes of opportunities. And so when Ryan, I mean, Ryan's a principal of an elementary school. And uh, so he came to me and he says, hey, could we maybe just host a tutoring opportunity for the community? And it's like, well, yeah, why not? 
And it keeps your doors open, people traffic, as well as maybe some of us who have interest, as he mentioned, be able to just come and rub shoulders. Uh, we also had another opportunity that we were really hoping would come here and uh, from another school system, and, and they made a decision uh, that they couldn't. Uh, but those are the kinds of open doors. Um, uh, Jeremy mentioned in a couple Sundays from now, we will have 20 students here from New York. And uh, they are going to be using this facility and be on the West Coast between us and another Alliance Church in San Diego uh, to, to learn about how to start churches. It's called Church Planters Boot Camp. And uh, I'm looking forward to mixing and mingling with them and that we have an opportunity to be host and to be able to provide a facility for people who are going to not just walk across the room, but they're going to take their life and walk across who knows what state and what uh, ocean to be able to start churches. And so keep your eyes open. Come to uh, me. Come to Jeremy if you had some different ideas. God's given us these facilities, and one of the ways we've been praying is that God would use our facilities uh, as a muscle for outreach. And uh, I know the same's going on with children's ministries and thinking about maybe how we can use that facility next door. Uh, but God wants to use our lives. He wants to use the provisions he's given us, and he's just going to kick open the doors. I firmly believe... And we had it a couple weeks ago when we closed the series where the Apostle Paul prayed for open doors. I firmly believe if we pray for open doors, God will open some doors we would have never thought of to walk through. If we pray that God would open some lives that we can walk into to encourage, there will be lives that are opened up. But we are in a spiritual battle the adversary does not want transformation to happen in people's lives. And so we begin on our knees by praying for God to bring uh, transformation and opportunity. Sound good? Will you pray with me? Lord, this morning as we work, look at your word, I pray that you would open up this psalm, Lord, and allow us to not only hear from you, but to see you in some new ways wherever we're at this morning. Lord, I thank you, God, for the testimonies that are going on in the lives of people uh, part of our body and other bodies around this valley. May you just continue to blow open doors and may your glory prevail upon the people in this valley so that we can bring honor and thanksgiving to you in all things. In your name we pray. Amen. You got your scriptures? How do you deal with your scriptures? Do you deal with your scriptures by opening a Bible? Do you open up your iPhone? How do you handle scripture? I want to encourage us to continue to be active in handling God's Word and Scripture during the week. And some of you may listen to Scripture on your long commutes, whatever it may be. But I want us to be a people of the Word. And to be a people of the Word, we have to handle God's Word. We have to listen to God's Word. We have to study God's Word. We have to wrestle with God's Word. We have to interact with God's Word. Next week, we begin a series called discovering the will of God. How do you know God's will in your life? We're going to spend three weeks parked there. Decisions are being made all over the place every day, every week by us. And some of those decisions really matter to God. And sometimes God's not front and center in those decisions. But how do you hear from God to make decisions? Well, I'll tell you in part where we're going next week. You're going to hear from God by handling his word. All right? 
So it's be in the Word. If you got your Word, pull it out. If not, I've got it up on the screen, so I know that's how some of you just uh, live life, and that's great. We are going to look at a psalm today. I believe it's important to uh, stay in the psalms every now and then, so every now and then I want to just pull out a psalm and use a psalm on a Sunday morning to walk through. And the psalm we're going to look at today is Psalm 73. I'm entitled The Righteous Perspective. It's a psalm of... Uh, Not David, because David wrote most of the psalms, but we have the opportunity to look at one of 12 psalms this morning written by his worship pastor. All right? Asaph wrote 12 psalms, Psalm 50, and then Psalm uh, 73 through 83 are attributed to him. And he was known as a leader in um, the, the ministry of the courts. And he organized, he planned, he was one who had a prophetic heart, he really was bothered by injustice, but he was a righteous man, he was a holy man, he was a good man, and he was on staff with King David and possibly also with King Solomon, all right? And so we are going to look at a psalm where he bears his soul to God. And I love this psalm because... I have the same bearing of the soul as Asaph had back then. 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 years, you count it, we're all still tied to the human generation and we still have the same soul-searching questions that people had back then. And you're going to find this psalm of Asaph is one of those for you. So we're going to lead off this way. We're going to lead off by referencing verse 1, and I'm going to give you four points today. And the first is this, choose righteous living. Choose righteous living, and it is a choice. He says this, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So here Asaph has, he has um, positioned a truth that he holds dear. But then there's this other truth that comes in that seems to put him in a quandary. And the truth that he holds dear is this. It's not like, well, surely, I mean, he might. I don't know. Heck, is, is God good to Israel or not? No, it's a statement of confidence. Surely God is good to Israel. So it's an affirmation of what he has seen in his life. Leading there in the tabernacle, temple kind of uh, environment. Pleased with what God has done on behalf of his nation, Israel. And then not only on a corporate level is God good. He says he's also good to those who are pure in heart. Those who choose righteous living. God is good to the pure in heart. Are you in that category this morning? Pure in heart? Someone who's good, who's seeking to live righteously before God? Then sit back and relax and be confident in this truth that surely it is true. Over and over and over again, God is good. I had one of those weeks where I experienced that God is good and his blessings in our life as a family. But then there's this truth that he's really bothered by and why really the whole psalm plays its way out. 
My feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. In other words, he was looking around and he was thinking to himself, well, man, God's good to me, but I'm trying to live for him. My neighbor, my office peer, my enemy, they're not living for God. And look at their life. They're prosperous. Now, with this psalm, you can identify the wicked throughout this psalm as those who are over in the camp of like really bad, ugly, sinful, murderous, cheater, robber kind of people. And, and that goes there. But more often than not in our life, it's not necessarily those who are outlandishly wicked. It's just those who are indifferent to God and they live on a path that, well, is not taking into consideration God like you are. And, and you look over sometime, and I like how one person framed it. He says, you know, it's sort of like you're a, uh, you're a spiritual chump. You familiar with that term, what a chump is? You're like, oh man, what a chump. I mean, look, he he won't go in the line when it says fifteen items only because he's got sixteen. <laughs> really, is he gonna drive the speed limit while I'm sitting in his car? Is he doing it? I I'm not gonna cheat on my expense report. It says don't do that. And they all do it but I'm not going to do it. And they just look at you and you go, what a chump. What a chump. So when this psalm references those who live a certain way, it's talking about those who are definitely living outside of God, and we're going to see that. But think in terms about how we live every day in our own life. Sometimes we, when we choose to live righteously, um, we start to get a little bit of burr in our saddle, right? Because there's other people that aren't, and no one notices, and they're prospering, and you're not, and this has an incongruent kind of feel to you. And so this is the question that the writer puts forth. What's going on? And he not only was bothered by it, but he began to envy them, the arrogant, for what was happening in their life. So the question, what about the prosperity of the wicked? Spurgeon says this, The writer does not doubt this, that God is good. But he lays it down as his firm conviction. It is well to make sure that, we, uh, that what we do know, for this will be a good anchor hold for us when we are molested by the mysterious storms which arise from things which we do not understand. So that's why I embed the whole choose righteous living, because choosing righteous living is an acknowledgement that surely God is good. But when the storms of uncertainty and confusion come in our life about what's happening around us, and as we observe other people, we've got to come back and stay anchored with that choice of his goodness towards us as we seek to live righteously before him and not allow ourselves to be on a slippery slope as he talks about here in these words. Because he felt that he started to slip with holding his choices of righteousness. Holding his choices of righteousness. You know, I, um, 
I don't know about you, but um, at different points in my life, I began to really uh, wrestle with this question. I remember one of the first times, and some of you know that I grew up on a large grain farm back in the Midwest, and uh, my father, I always appreciated my father, he kept the Sabbath, so we didn't work on the Sabbath. And um, that could cost you dollars sometimes when you had just a narrow window of opportunity to get your crops in the ground before the rain set in or other kinds of things. And uh, I would observe that, you know, it didn't matter if you obeyed God or not. It seemed like one farmer to the next, to the next, to the next. They all got the same amount of rain sometimes. In fact, some got more rain than you did. The Bible actually says that God, the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. And I would think, you know, man, we're, we're being responsible. We go to church. We let our equipment set on Sunday. We work very hard. There's other things that go on. Why is it that other people prosper and their crops end up being better than ours? It doesn't matter. Because God is going to deal with each person equally as he sees fair, fair share. And I learned very early on that you cannot start to get your eyes set on other people, but to be reminded of God's goodness in your own life and what he is doing. I think we can look around a lot of news events today and you go, is anybody ever going to do something about those people? Or look at that individual. How can they continue to prosper and gain wealth? How do they continue to have success and they lead that kind of lifestyle and they talk that kind of way? Anchor yourself on the goodness of God and continue to choose righteous living in all that you do. Do not let the appearance of the wicked prospering deter you from staying the course. Asaph said his feet almost slipped. He was on ground that was crumbling and breaking underneath him. When he started to do that comparison... And started to think that, well, not just cheating, but why do I even discipline my life that way over the course of time? He goes on and he says this, and he gets sort of specific. He says, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. It's even embedded in here the idea in another translation that they even die well sometimes. They don't even struggle when they die. And everything that seems to be a burden to most men, they're free from. Maybe because of some of their corrupt ways, they've been able to financially gain in ways you have not. And so they're able to be freed from burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. They seem to be healthy. Pride is their necklace. They wear it around and they clothe themselves with violence in other kinds of ways. Verse 7, from their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and they speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. They've got it all. You have little. You're living righteously. They're living indifferent to God. You're the spiritual chump. They're the indulgent one. You stay clear from boundaries you know you shouldn't cross. 
they have no boundaries. And you sit and you compare yourself and you go, huh, I wonder if maybe that's a better way. The truth, surely God's good to me. Yes, he is. But he's also good to them. Maybe the grass is greener on the other side of choosing righteous living. And from their place of wealth or prosperity or fame or happiness or carefree spirit, people start to look up to them and they start to think, well, they have something going that I need to learn from. We picture the rich, the famous, the proud, the showy, the violent, the greedy, the foul-mouthed gangsters strutting around enjoying their wickedness and we're troubled by their prosperity and we wonder if maybe there's a different path for us to be leading our life. They're indifferent to God. Why am I a spiritual chump trying to be in the Word, show up at church, raise my kids in a godly manner? Does it really matter? Verse 10. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? You see, the people around them, they look to them and they go, oh, man, I want to drink up. I want to lap up their water. I want to do what they're doing, man. I want to succeed after them. Success. There's nothing wrong with it. But if you put success as your ultimate goal and drive and passion in life, especially as it relates to success in this world, beware. Beware. But it's not like a big beware sign before you when you see them living that way. You see other people wanting to hug up alongside them, find out the best techniques. How can I get after what they're after and succeed in their ways? And all that in its rightful place is okay. But when it starts to become something of the God that replaces the ultimate God, there's danger. You see, they're not only just lavishly living this lifestyle and all these other seeming things going well for them. They then turn arrogant towards God and the existence of God himself. How can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? It's a mocking kind of spirit. Yeah, there's no God. I'm amazed at how easy it is when life is going well to believe that a God doesn't exist. Because you don't need God. Your provisions, you actually think you've accomplished yourself. Not realizing that all things, all good and perfect things come from God. But there's blinders on sometimes when when there's prosperity that's just a flowing. And those blinders keep us away from seeing God and all of his activity and the surroundings that are happening. Verse 12 then says this. This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree. They increase in wealth. Verse 13. Surely in vain. I have kept my heart pure in vain. I have washed my hands in innocence. All day long, I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. Yeah. Where is God? I'm sure 
If I was asked for testimonies on this point, we could all describe a place and time in our life when we were in the pit and we were asking this very question. Surely in vain. Why me, God? Why do I do this? Not only look at the others, but look what's happening to my life. I mean, it pulls out all day long. I've been plagued. I've even been punished every morning, God. I mean, yeah, surely God's good. The righteous, I understand that, and the pure in heart. But, man, this is where I'm sitting at today. Every morning I get up and there's pain. Every morning I get up and there's uncertainty. Every morning I get up and there's fear about the unknown. Why, Lord? Why is this my lot in life? And I tell you what, that pit, you can keep climbing down deeper and deeper and deeper into that pit if you so choose. You can do it. It's sort of a bottomless pit. You start focusing on maybe some unfairness issues around you, and you're going to start wishing you had more. Well, why did they get to do that? I don't ever get to do that. Why do those kinds of cool things happen to them? That never happens to me. Why am I struggling such? Then he says this, verse 15. He says, if I had said I will speak thus, I'll declare and say all this over again, I would have betrayed your children. He starts to catch himself and he says, you know, I, I better stop talking like this. Because if I keep spilling out this kind of venom, this kind of comparison, this kind of de- despair, it's going to start affecting other people and children. And you're right. It does. That's why I don't like to be around really negative people that aren't grateful people. I like to be around grateful people, especially people that are grateful that don't really have much. Because it causes me to be more reflective. But then if I get around people that are on some high horse of success drivenness and they're complaining about this and that, then I go, yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. And so something begins to change in Asaph as he looks on this problem. Verse 16, when I tried to understand all this, It was oppressive to me. It was painful. Till. Verse 17. That word till. That's a pretty important word. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Choose righteous living. The second thing I'd say is this. Capture eternal perspective. Now, it says that he entered the sanctuary. What did he do? He went to church. He went to church like you come to church today. Now, I don't quite understand the full ramifications of what was all meant by the sanctuary as far as his physical locality. Did he, you know, go into the holy presence of God? Did he pull out uh, the scrolls and start reading through things of the Hebrew scriptures? Did he spend some time meditating in prayer? I don't know all that's involved physically when the writer says, I entered the sanctuary of God. But I do know this. The word sanctuary means set apart. Set apart. Set apart for holy things. And so he entered a space where God could be felt. Where God could be sought. Where he could hear from God. He chose to isolate himself not from he chose to isolate himself from all the um, uh, the noise of the world 
And he came to sit himself before God and he said, God, this is troublesome to me. This is troublesome to me. I feel plagued. I feel punished. Yeah, surely you've been good. I know that to be true. But then I see all the prosperity of the wicked. And I find myself on a slippery slope. The ground underneath me is breaking. And I don't know if I can hold, hold good with this righteousness. And then he comes into the sanctuary. And when he's in the sanctuary, he begins to understand something. The final destiny. I like the stained glass. We don't have any stained glass here. The best thing we can do is roll up our blinds and let the light shine in. Stained glass was placed in churches, well, in different kinds of ways. I won't go into all of it, but it was an art form. They didn't have PowerPoint then, right? That kind of thing. So you would depict stories in the stained glass. But stained glass from the outside doesn't look all that great. It's sort of dark. But if you enter into the sanctuary and you allow the light of God to shine through the stained glass, you sit there in awe. Some of you have been in big cathedrals where you go, that's amazing. Wow. The beauty of that. And I have this image of me when, when, in, in, my, in my heart that I carried that when God, uh, when Asaph went into the sanctuary of God, it's like going from the outside of the chapel building, opening the doors, going inside and seeing the beauty and the wonder of God as he speaks and radiates truth back into our life. And so I encourage you, if you're struggling whether it's with this issue this morning, the, the prosperity of the wicked, or some other issue that you're struggling with, find yourself in a sanctuary. And a sanctuary isn't as much about the physical space as it is about the spiritual space. You place yourself in the presence of God. And I think it's so cool when God said it's to your advantage that, you know, Jesus said it's to your advantage I leave because I'm going to send my spirit. You can enter the sanctuary of God anywhere. Now, there's some beautiful places of nature where it's like seems to be extra quadruple, whatever, cool to be in the sanctuary of God. But you can be in the sanctuary of God in a prison, in your pit where you're at. But you've got to let his truth begin to speak into your life. And it's a perspective that he wants to show you concerning your circumstances and all that's going on. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Until we enter the sanctuary of God, the crisis around us will continue to build and build and build. Stop. Find your way to Him. Find your way to His Scriptures. Find your way to prayer. Find your way into worship. God begins to minister. I know it's true even when I come in here in the morning, you think, hey, you're the pastor. You're supposed to sort of be up on a Sunday morning. It's not always true. Trust me. I'm obedient. I'm disciplined to what God's called me to do. But I come, and sometimes like we're standing in worship, and sometimes I just sit down. Because I sit down because I feel God trying to speak to me and I'm just going through the motions of the songs. 
and I say, Lord, I need some sacred space right now while my brothers and sisters are singing around me. I, I need to be with you. I need to be with you. Church helps us find sanctuary with God. But I tell you what, there's a lot of people that never enter the sanctuary of God and they've gone to church their whole life. Because it's a place of the soul. Enter the sanctuary of God and then you begin to have some understanding. Verse 18. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. So what the writer here does is he gets a grip on the big picture of life, and he says, listen, there's something going on here. They may have this fullness, this, this um, uh, prosperity for this season, but it's merely temporal. It's almost like a dream. And you wake up out of the dream and you go, oh, oh my goodness, my days before me. It wasn't the pretty dream I thought it was. And so when you live just according to this temporal life and you come up out of that dream and you understand that we are created as eternal beings and God has eternal plans for us, their destiny as unrighteous is different than your destiny as the righteous. And that destiny is one of brokenness, one of destruction. And here's the psalmist, right? He starts out the psalm saying, man, I'm on slippery slope. I can hardly get up. I, I'm trying to live for God. Oh, I just fell back down. And he thought he was on the slippery slope. Then he looks at it and he says, I'm not on the slippery slope. Look at them. Their slippery slope is, is far more detrimental than anything I thought I was on. The ground is truly going to crumble underneath them. They're going to slide back without any problems. Like this whole slippery thing. I have any of you try to go the wrong way up a really big slide, right? You think you're doing pretty good as a kid, right? You're getting up the slide. Oh, look at me, I'm going up the wrong way and slide. And then all of a sudden, whoops, and you're down. So this whole idea of slippery, I think about that. It looks like they're gaining ground up the slide, but they're down before you know it. And these are some of the things that the psalmist begins to try to contemplate what's going on in their life compared to the life that God has put in me. Surely you have set them on a slippery space, not me. He awakens to the shining truth of God coming in through the beautiful stained glass of the sanctuary. His soul begins to understand things by looking at an eternal perspective. We do this with, I do this with uh, the evil in the world. Well, how, how long are you going to let that evil exist, God? I couldn't put up with that. I would do something about that if I was all powerful, right? In fact, the people that mock God and say there is no God, a lot of times they'll look at that and say, well, wait, look at all the evil and the suffering that exists. If there was a God who was all powerful and all loving, then he would do something with this. Well, here's something they fail to realize. God is all-powerful. God is all-loving. But because evil exists, doesn't disprove that there's that kind of God. It means that he's not dealt with it yet. You see, you have to have the time equation in there. When you start talking about the existence of God, the goodness of God, the omnipotence of God, God is all-powerful. God is all-loving. But God is gracious and he desires that all would be saved and he's giving time. But there comes a day when he says no more. No more. 
And so the psalmist goes, wow, when it comes that day when there's no more, I'm on solid ground. They're on slippery ground. The next thing we're encouraged to do, choose righteous living, capture eternal perspective is this. Continue steadfast obedience. In verse 21, it says this. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterwards you will take me to glory. So in this he says, wow, I was an arrogant fool to be proclaiming and uh, griping to God. Because once I walked in the sanctuary and I began to fresh myself in worship and understanding his truth, I realized that I'm on solid ground. They're on slippery ground. I was a brute beast, and there's different kinds of beasts you can think of. And our example here is like, I was just a dumb ox, man. I was a dumb ox thinking that stuff. Silly me, how foolish that was. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me to glory. There is a steadfast obedience. And it isn't the, hey, just suck it up, keep on, keep it on. It's like, no. God's surely good to Israel and those who are pure in heart. Stay obedient with him just as surely as time will tell in the destruction of those who are wicked. Time will tell in bringing about beauty and goodness in your life. Stay the course. Stay steadfast. God loves to see steadfast obedience. One of my favorite sayings, and I've had to use it recently in the last couple of weeks, is don't doubt in the dark what God showed you in the light. And when you get in your pits of darkness, don't start doubting. Remember what God showed you in the light and stay the course. He then begins to finish up. And I add the fourth. Cherish divine presence. Cherish divine presence. Verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You ever heard that phrase, that section of the psalm? That's a good couple verses out of Psalm 73 to remember. Let's say it together. Ready? Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Cherish divine presence. Stay close to him in all that you do and all that you say. He will show himself strong even when you have doubts. May I just encourage you that it's okay to have doubts. It's one of the reasons I love the Psalms. Even those who are living the Christian life well have doubts. And Asaph is an example of that. I'm going to have the worship team come up and we're going to sing a hymn. Change it up a little bit. You guys can come. But I want to close by just reading the whole psalm again from a paraphrased version called The Message. And I like sort of some of the twists and the angles um, that the writer um, puts into it. Here you go. You ready? 
No doubt about it. God is good. Good to good people. Good to the good hearted. Hey, hey, I nearly missed it. Missed seeing his goodness. I was looking the other way. Looking up to the people at the top. Envying the wicked who have it made. Who have nothing to worry about. Not a care in the whole wide world. Pretentious with arrogance. They wear the latest fashions and violence. Pampered and overfed. Decked down in silk bows of silliness. They jeer using words to kill. They bully their way with words. They're full of hot air. Loud mouths disturbing the peace. People actually listen to them. Can you believe it? Like thirsty puppies, they lap up their words. What's going on here? Is God out to lunch? Nobody's tending the store. The wicked get by with everything. They have it made, piling up riches. I've been stupid to play by the rules. What has it gotten me? A long run of bad luck, that's what. A slap in the face every time I walk out the door. If I'd have given in and talked like this, I would have betrayed your dear children. Still, when I tried to figure it out, all I got was a splitting headache. Until, until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I saw the whole picture. The slippery road you've put them on with a final crash and a ditch of delusions and the blink of an eye, disaster. A blind curve in the dark and nightmare. We wake up and rub our eyes, nothing. There's nothing to them. And there never was. When I was beleaguered and bitter, totally consumed by envy, I was a totally ignorant, a dumb ox in your very presence. I'm still in your very presence, but you've taken my hand. You've wisely and tenderly led me, and then you bless me. You're all I want in heaven. You're all I want on earth. When my skin sags and my bones get brittle, God is rock firm and faithful. Look, those who are left, you are falling apart. Deserters, they'll never be heard from again. But I am in the very presence of God. Oh, how refreshing it is. I've made the Lord God my home. God, I'm telling the world what you do. (coughs) Let's sing this sin. And let's let the light of God shine in our life of his greatness and his glory because we serve a great God and he will be faithful. Stay true. The ushers are going to come to receive God's Tyson offerings too.